please remaining standing uh, as we read God's Word this morning. Uh, you can follow me in your Bibles or on the uh, screen above us. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. I mentioned to the, the staff this morning that uh, Paul writes about the way I think. It's kind of hard reading. It's not, it's not smooth and doesn't flow, so it should suit me to a T. But uh, the words that he spoke to the Ephesians... Verse 11, chapter 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Mike. Good morning. Well, some of you know uh, we had a team that came back from uh, Romania uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, it was a great time, and, uh, and so there were a lot of opportunities for us during this uh, trip where the uh, Edgemans, uh, the Hallbrooks and the Sciences would be out uh, doing uh, VBS, so they kind of hosted this VBS, just were uh, killing it there. The kids loved it, teaching kids how to read, teaching kids about the gospel and so forth. But a lot of that time that they were out doing that, Carl and his son Taylor and I kind of had some downtime. And, uh, and so there would be a lot of opportunities for us during uh, this time. Uh, for conversations. The problem was Carl doesn't speak in tongues, I don't speak in tongues, and we only had like one or two uh, translators between us, and we had a group of like 30 middle school and high school students. And so we had to try to figure out some way uh, that we could keep them engaged. And so we would teach for a little bit. Their attention span didn't last too long, especially with translation. And, uh, and so we decided that we would have some competitions. And, uh, and so one of the things that we really did is uh, we played ping pong. We played a whole lot of ping pong, they have a ping pong table there in uh, their church, and, uh, and so we played. You might not know this, but Romania is actually the junior world champions in ping pong. Fortunately, none of those players were actually going to church here, and so uh, I think uh, we acquitted ourselves uh, quite well, and, uh, and so we were playing ping pong, and, uh, and then somehow or another, uh, Taylor ended up arm wrestling one of our translators, and... Uh, and so probably because I provoked him into it, probably because I incited him into it, uh, but for whatever reason, uh, Taylor and this uh, translator arm wrestle, and, uh, and so this group of Romanian kids come up to me and say, can we arm wrestle? So I said, sure. So I arm wrestled one of the kids, and then there was this line. By the time I finished, there was like 20 kids lined up to arm wrestle. So I arm wrestled so much, even though these are like 10, 11, 12, 14-year-old, whoever, uh, whatever, 
uh, my arm was killing me. Both arms were killing me. I'd do right and uh, left, depending on which one they chose and so forth. I don't remember, thinking back, I can't remember the very first time I learned how to arm wrestle. That's a skill at some point you pick up as a kid. I don't remember the first time, but I remember one time in particular from my childhood that haunts me. I was a, uh, I was a freshman in high school, and I ended up arm wrestling my mom. Not sure how that happened, probably because my brother provoked me into it, uh, as he tended to do. And so I end up arm wrestling my mom, and I lost. Now, if you don't know why that is humiliating, you have never been a 14-year-old boy, uh, because I was just absolutely devastated. I was so devastated that I literally went out, spent all of the, my savings that I'd had to go and buy some weights, and for the next month, I worked out in the garage, lifting weights, re-arm wrestled my mom and won and regained my adolescent dignity, whatever it might be. Our text this morning is about this process of being strengthened, this process of growing up from infancy, from childhood into maturity, into adulthood. But the way that we do that is not through lifting weights or something like that. It's this thing that Paul's going to call speaking the truth in love. The way that we collectively, the way that we individually are built up as a body, as saints, is through this process called speaking the truth in love. So let's pray, and then we'll see how the text develops this idea. Let me first ask you just to pray for yourself. Ask the Lord to give you eyes to see and ears to hear. You come in with distractions. You come in with uh, things on your heart and on your mind. Let's ask that the Lord would open your eyes, that you might behold wonderful things in his word. And then will you pray that for those around you, your spouse, your children, your parents, strangers, friends, whatever it might be, just those around that the Lord would collectively give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. And then will you pray for me that the Lord would give me uh, wisdom and boldness to be able to uh, shepherd us through this text. So Father, we ask that you would bless us this morning, that you would help us to see your word and to see you through your word and to uh, admire and to revel in uh, the glory and the goodness of your word that we might see its consistency and authority and sufficiency and necessity and all the beautiful attributes uh, of your word and of truth and theology and these sorts of things, Lord, that we might not uh, hide ourselves from them, Lord, but we might welcome them as opportunities to see you and your glory and your goodness, Lord. So meet with us this morning, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at verse 11. Again, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. We'll start in verse 11. Paul writes, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So in last week's text, we saw that Christ distributes various gifts to the body within this unified body, which he emphasized there by saying there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and on and on. Seven different times he points to the unity of the body. That's been a theme of Ephesians. But within this unified body, there's this beautiful diversity where God gives diverse gifts to uh, the body. But not only has Christ given gifts, but he's given particular roles within the body. He's gifted particular people toward particular roles in ministry. And second, we'll see that the purpose of these gifts and the purpose of these roles are for the corporate good 
of the body. In verse 7, Paul had written that grace was given to every member. We talked about that last week. In other words, every member has received some sort of gift for the benefit of the body. And Paul's going to return to that point uh, shortly. But here in verse 11, his concern is not so much with the gifts that we've all been given, but rather the particular gifting of certain individuals. Uh, Last week, Zach shared a really helpful analogy that I want to kind of go back to. And he talked about this love-hate relationship that he has uh, with gun ranges. You might remember that. If not, go back and listen to the audio. But Zach has this love-hate relationship with gun ranges. Some of you may know this. Some of you may not. But uh, in between ministry positions, in between uh, Zach and I working together at our previous church and then Zach coming on staff here, he actually worked in uh, the gun industry. And, uh, and so he is super passionate about guns. You probably know that because every analogy that he ever gives is about the Marines or the Navy SEALs or something like that. But Zach is just super passionate about guns. Let me tell you a little story. Tomorrow is Zach's boy, Judah. It's his birthday. It's his second birthday. Let me tell you where Zach was on the day of Judah's birth. I know because I was with him. Zach was not like giving uh, his wife a foot massage or, you know, doing something like that. Zach is doing tactical room clearing training with a former Navy SEAL. That's what Zach is doing. And, uh, and I feel like I have to tell uh, this story uh, as well. Uh, we are doing this tactical training, and towards the end, Zach looks at me and says, Hey, will you shoot me? And I said, Sure. We're using these simunitions, which are like uh, military-grade tactical training, non-lethal projectiles. Basically, it shoots a bullet, but that bullet is made of paste rather than metal. Uh, But it's going at the same speed as a normal firearm and so forth, and Zach wants to be shot. So I look at the trainer and say, hey, is this something that I can do? And he says, sure, absolutely, there's no problem with it. And so what we were doing is we were doing this exercise where you, you stand in the middle of a room, and, uh, and there's like a, a red circle over here and a green square, and then there's certain words and numbers. And the, the guy would call out something, and you'd have to draw your weapon, and then you'd have to turn and shoot that thing, whatever it is that he says. He says red square, or he says, uh, you know, blue circle, or whatever it is, and you shoot that thing. So we're going along and doing it, and then all of a sudden he yells out, Pastor, and I turn and shoot Zach right in the chest. And later that day, his son is born. So I'm already planning my next opportunity to shoot him in the chest so that Katie will go ahead and go into birth, uh, go into labor. And, uh, and so anyway, this was the day that uh, Zach's child uh, was born. The point is, Zach loves guns. He loves to shoot. He's actually a licensed firearm instructor. Now, Carl and I love to shoot. After all, I was there uh, at the tactical training uh, with Zach. Uh, Carl and I love shooting. We could be helpful if anybody didn't know how to shoot, if anybody didn't know anything about guns and you wanted to have a conversation, we could help you uh, with that. But Zach is particularly gifted when it comes to equipping people in this area. He has had all of the requisite training and so forth. That is a good analogy for what this text is talking about, that God has filled the church with people of various giftings, And those giftings here in verse 11 are given for the training of God's people. As uh, as he talked about range officers last week who are given in order to help people to learn how to shoot and to make sure they're shot, uh, all shooting in the same direction. So the Lord gives particular individuals to the church to make sure we are all, in a spiritual sense, shooting in 
the same direction. And Paul introduces those roles as apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds or pastors, depending on your translation, and, uh, and teachers. Now, if you're asking this question, if you're asking the question, does this mean that there are apostles and prophets uh, today, this text does not answer that question. This text does not answer that question. That isn't Paul's point at all. Paul's point is not that every generation will have every one of these roles. Um, his point instead is that God has given various roles for the church, and every role that he's given to the church is for it to be edified, for it to be equipped, for it to be encouraged. These are just some of the representative examples that Paul is going to give us of roles that he gives to the church for the equipping of the saints. So if we wanted to ask the question, are there apostles and are there prophets today, we'd really have to look at a host of other texts and so forth. At some point in theological equipping, we will probably get to those particular questions, but let me just give you a few thoughts on it. As it relates to apostles, there's various ways, if you're reading the Bible, there's various ways that this word apostle will be used. There's a very specific sense in which it, uh, it, it uh, means kind of the 11 original apostles, minus uh, uh, Judas, obviously. So you have kind of this specific sense where it's there. Then you have a more inclusive sense where it, it, it refers not only to these 11, but to Paul, uh, maybe uh, James and Barnabas, maybe a couple of others and so forth. But then there's also this wider use where it's just used of one who is sent, one who is sent out to do the work of church planting, for instance, uh, and so forth. But I just have a rule of thumb when it comes to this particular topic that if anybody calls themselves an apostle, I'm highly suspicious of it. If someone has a gift today of church planting, I just want to call them a church planter. I don't want to call them uh, an apostle. Likewise, if someone calls themselves a prophet, before the completion of Scripture, those terms, apostle and prophet, carried this nuance of authority that today we would look and say, this is where that authority resides. That authority doesn't reside in a particular person and so forth. So I think it's highly confusing. Someone could have the gift of church planning. Someone had, could have the gift of prophecy, even if we don't know exactly how that functions today. But that doesn't mean that we should call them an apostle or a prophet because those terms are confusing in light of the overwhelming way that Scripture is going to use those. So not only is Paul going to uh, say that uh, we shouldn't think that this list is played out in every generation, in every church, or anything like that. But neither is this intended to be comprehensive or exhaustive. For example, although the term pastor and teacher or shepherd and teacher would probably signify overlap with an elder, Paul doesn't explicitly use that. He doesn't use the Greek terms episkopos or presbyteros, the words that typically refer to an elder. He doesn't use those uh, here. And so he doesn't mention elders specifically. He doesn't mention deacons uh, specifically, We know that's an enduring office of the church. The reason he doesn't mention deacons is because he's talking about roles that are given to equip the church. Whereas deacons are doing more of the ministry of the church directly. And so this is going to be really helpful for us as we think through this. These particular roles are given to the church for the equipping of the church to do the work of ministry. Which I think is a really helpful corrective for you and I against how most people probably view uh, church ministry. Historically, if you look at it historically, churches are kind of all over the map. They're all over the place when it comes to their understanding of ministry. You'll see two dominant positions 
uh, on the kind of ecclesiological landscape. As you look at historically how do churches wrestle through the issue of ministry, you'll see two kind of main positions that have emerged. On one hand, or you have churches that uh, hire a sort of lone pastor and expect him to do everything. He preaches, he teaches, he counsels, uh, he does all of the weddings, he does all of the funerals, he basically does everything. He's kind of the renaissance man. Um, on the other hand, especially recently, you'll see churches that have kind of recognized the deficiency of this model, but they have simply replaced that model with another model where they just hire staff for everything. There's any need within the church whatsoever, let's just hire somebody to do it. So ironically, though one of these models has not enough staff and the other model has too much staff, ironically they both share the same weakness, which is they're not actually doing what Paul says is to be the purpose of the church in equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. The Bible doesn't give us a particular formula to follow. It says thus uh, and, and so many uh, staff members should you have per person, thus and so many elders should you have, thus and so many uh, deacons should you have, or anything like that. But it does give us this basic framework for understanding that the people that God gives to the church to lead the church should be using their leadership in order to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. You will always have opportunities. You as the saints will always have opportunities that I don't, that Mike Edgman doesn't, that Jerry Hallbrook doesn't, that Dr. Steve doesn't, that Carl doesn't, that all these elders and staff members of the church don't have. There are people that know you, that love you, that trust you. There are people that you have relationship with that we won't. There are needs within the church that we cannot meet. That's why we are always pushing this idea to our people of missional living, whereby you're doing ministry in your church, you're doing ministry in your homes, you're doing ministry in your offices, your neighborhoods, your kids' sports teams, you're building relationships, you're having conversations. As saints, Paul says, you are expected to do the work of ministry to build up the body. That can't be outsourced to someone with a title of elder or even deacon or minister or whatever it might be. So let me give you a few practical examples uh, of this, of how this plays itself out in the real world. Some of you have the gift of hospitality. Let me encourage you, have people over to your house. This is becoming a lost art in today's world where everything, you just, let's go out to eat. Let's go out to eat. Have people in your home. Invite them over. Start a fire. Sit there by the fire. Drink some coffee or whatever it might be. Some of you have the gift of teaching. Zach talked about this last week. You don't have to wait for a formal opportunity to teach. You don't have to wait for us to put together a class where you get to stand in front. Just start a little Bible study in your community. Start a little Bible study in your, uh, your office, whatever it might be. An opportunity that every one of us have, regardless of our gifts, our passions, whatever it might be, every one of us has this opportunity to invite friends and family here to Parkway. One of the ways that you can strengthen the body, which is the goal here, we equip the saints for the work of ministry, that the body might be built up. One of the ways that we can do this is by helping to bring others, whether they are immature unbelievers or they are really mature believers who want to be on mission with us. Bring them into this uh, body together that we might be built up. But let me encourage you in this way. Don't just look for places that you're passionate or look for places in which you are personally gifted. Look for areas of need. I'm not a doctor, but if someone's having a heart attack in front of me, I'm going to seek to help however I can. I'm not gifted in that area. I'm not talented 
in that area. I know basic CPR, and yet at the same time, I have a need in front of me. I'm going to respond to that need. And so we've mentioned before there is a particular need that we have in the season of not to go far too, off, too far off into the bushes of a particular practical example, but there is a particular need that we have in this season. When we hired Carl uh, a little over six months ago, we were averaging about six or seven kids in preschool. Now we're averaging about 20 or 21, all right? Praise the Lord for that. We have over tripled in regards to our preschool population, but with that comes this uh, increased need for us to serve the body in, uh, in this capacity. And so let me encourage you in this way. When you're thinking about building up the body, there's two places that you need to look. You look inward and you think about what are my desires, what are my passions, what are my gifts, but you also look outward. In spite of what those things are, you look at the need around you and you say, can I meet that need? Do I have an opportunity uh, to meet that need? Back to the text. Notice how long he talks about this process, this process of being built up as a body. Notice how long that takes place. Look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is a lifelong process of being built up within the body and it's corporate, not just something that you attain, but until we all attain to this together. This is this corporate aspect until we all attain, not just you individually. The goal of your sanctification is not just your individual sanctification. It's ecclesiological. It's horizontal. There is this interdependence that we have, and it's a lifelong process. In 2009, I got to go to Sudan for the first time, and we were going to be teaching on uh, just kind of the foundation of the gospel, gathering together with about 20 or so pastors from the, uh, the area around uh, Ye, South Sudan. And uh, so we gathered uh, a team together. And as I was uh, gathering this team uh, of about five guys or something, there was one guy in particular I really wanted to go with us. Uh, most of us were, were much younger uh, in our uh, late 20s or early 30s or whatever it might be. And, uh, and knowing we're speaking to guys who had been pastors for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, whatever it might be. And so I thought, man, it would be great for us to have an older gentleman, a little bit of gray hair on our team. And there was a guy who was a retired federal judge who went to uh, my church. And, uh, and, and he had retired uh, from the judgeship, but he was faithfully serving within the, the body. He was a community group leader. He was teaching a Bible study, doing all of these sorts of things. He was highly gifted in that area. And I wanted him to go and speak on the, the topic of justification. I mean, who better to talk about justification than a guy who knows Scripture and also has that sort of cultural understanding of, uh, of the law and so forth as a former federal judge. And so I remember sitting down at dinner... With, uh, with he and his wife, and, uh, and uh, over our dinner, I said at one point, hey, I am going to South Sudan. I would love for you to consider coming, and his face turned white, 72 years old, never done anything like that in his life, and so he said, what all Christians say, I'll pray about it. I found out later he had no intention whatsoever of praying about it or thinking about it or whatever, but he didn't want to say that in the moment because he's a good Christian. And, uh, and so uh, I leave for the day, uh, and, uh, and I find out later that the Lord will not let him sleep that night. Just he's tossing and turning, and the question over and over and over in his mind is, you've already retired from work. Is this now the sign that you're retiring from ministry? 
Are you going to coast from here on out? Are you going to stagnate? Or are you going to keep advancing for the kingdom? He did not like that answer because it ended up leading him to Sudan. And he was great. He had a great time. He loved it. He was such an encouragement to the team. The point is, whether you are 72 years old or you followed Jesus for 70 years or whatever it might be, there are still places to advance. There are still things to learn. There is still sanctification to be had. There's still sins to crucify. There's still joy to be found on and on we could go. That This is a process that never ends until we all attain to the unity of the faith. The faith. You know, they say that your, your ears and your uh, nose never stop growing. That's kind of an image uh, of as some parts of the physical body never stop growing. So there are uh, there is this reality in the spiritual sense. The spiritual body should never stop growing. None of us as members should ever stop growing. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. This is the goal. This is the work of shepherds and teachers in the church to help move people from infancy to maturity as it relates to theology and doctrine. So what does Paul mean by these three phrases? He's used three phrases there. He's talked about uh, human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes, by winds of doctrine. If you read commentaries, people will speculate that he's talking about this particular heresy or that particular heresy or something. But the, uh, the book of Ephesians itself doesn't address it, so it's probably best for us not to wander off into speculation and just say he's talking about false teaching in general. False teaching has always been intermingled within the church, whether you're talking about the Judaizers that Paul has to deal with that preach that you must be circumcised there in the first century, whether you're talking about Gnosticism in, uh, in the second century, whether you're talking about the Christological and theological uh, uh, Trinitarian heresies of the third and fourth century, there's always been this intermingling between good, solid, orthodox teaching and heterodoxy or heresy, or false teaching. In, uh, in 1978, one of my mom's cousins uh, disappeared, was never heard from again, uh, except for uh, the family heard this rumor that he had attached himself to uh, the uh, Jim Jones cult. Never heard from uh, again to this uh, day. Just this week, I read the testimony of a guy who nearly died. He said he nearly died because he came to faith and was instantly uh, mentored by this, uh, this person who was a, uh, a faith healer and taught a form of the prosperity gospel that uh, denied any sort of medical inter intervention whatsoever. So this guy, when he got deathly ill, he would not go to the hospital. So these are just some examples, whether it's uh, this sort of uh, Jonestown massacre or jihad or prosperity gospel theology or whatever it might be, these examples of Literally, where bad theology can kill you. These are the kinds of things that we might associate. These real overt, obvious things are the kind of things we might associate with false uh, teaching. Like the time I met a guy and that guy said, hey, I am one of the witnesses from Revelation chapter 11. There's two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. That guy freaked me out. I got away from that guy. Uh, those are the kinds of things we all know how to spot. If someone stands up, looks like David Koresh, wears eyeglasses, but he says, I am the Christ then we know this guy's a false teacher, right? That's easy for us uh, to be able to spot most of the time. 
although they do get a following and so forth. What is much more subtle are those uh, much more uh, minor little variations in uh, theology. Most false teaching that we encounter within the church is much more subtle and thus more, much more dangerous because we don't see it coming. It's things like moralism, where the gospel is simply just transferred into this set of rules, or relativism, where the gospel makes no demands on our lives uh, whatsoever. But the goal of preaching, the goal of teaching, is to help us, to awaken in us the ability to spot a truth from a lie. It's the difference between kind of meeting identical twins for the first time and then growing up with them. Two of my really good friends I played soccer with growing up uh, were identical twins. And if you met them for the first time, you couldn't tell them apart. And yet from all the way down across the soccer field, I could tell them apart. Why? Because I'd grown up with them. I'd known them for 10 years. And so it was very easy for me to distinguish between the two. That's the process of growing within the church and your theological understanding. That whenever you first get saved, it's really hard to distinguish the difference between truth and falsehood. But as you grow up, as you build relationship with Scripture, as you build relationship with truth and theology, you begin to uh, be equipped to distinguish those two. This is why teaching is so central in the life of the church, why we try to cultivate that here at Parkway through expository preaching where we go line by line through the Scripture, theological equipping, Children's equipping classes, the blogs that we post, and all those kind of things are resources to help build us up in our ability to spot the difference. When Peter restores, I'm sorry, when Jesus restores Peter, what's his command? He says, feed my sheep. What do you feed but God's word? When Jesus gives his departing commission, he says to make disciples, not just converts. And the way that you move from a convert to a disciple is through teaching. Jesus is teaching them to obey all my commands, when Paul writes the pastoral epistles, when Paul is writing to Timothy and Titus and saying, this is what's most central, the most central idea of the pastoral epistles is to preach the word, to guard the doctrine, to be faithful in regards to truth and theology, to promote and proclaim the word. The most important thing about a church is what they believe and teach, but that's rare to find that in someone who's looking for a church. People want flash, they want relevance, whatever that means. They want humor and entertainment and smoke and lasers. They want people their own age. They want something that's familiar. They're looking for something really novel or really nostalgic or whatever it might be. Just last week we had a, a gentleman who came in here, stayed for maybe a minute and a half or so of worship and then walked out and Carl went out behind him, just said, hey man, can I help you with anything? And the guy said, I think I'm going to check out another church. And Carl said, aren't you going to stay? Aren't you going to stay and at least hear the sermon and so forth? And the guy said, no, I don't like guitars. And that was it. So here this, this guy is willing to forsake the most important thing for something that's peripheral, like the choice of an instrument or whatever it might be. If A.W. Tozer is right, you might have heard this quote before. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. If that's true on an individual level, how could that also not be true on a corporate level? The most important thing about a church is what they believe about God and His Word. Unfortunately, that's not how most people think about which church to attend. And even worse, that's not how most churches think and operate. So people are always going to naturally default to their personal preferences rather than biblical uh, priorities. 
Most children would love it if you gave them a diet that only consists of brownie and ice cream. I know some adults in here can relate to that. But whether we live like it or not, at least when we're adults, at least we recognize that's not healthy, that's not good for us, right? There's this sense in which we at least recognize that, that what matters most when it comes to teaching is not what tickles the ear, what pleases the tongue, whatever it might be, but that which will nourish the body, the milk, the meat of God's Word. Good parents give their children the things that they actually need, not necessarily what they want. So good pastors do the same. They give people what they actually need, which is God's Word and truth. And the more mature the member, the more they will grasp that, the more that they will crave that. Let's look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him as the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the flow over the past few weeks is fascinating. Two weeks ago, we saw all of the reasons that there should be unity within the church body. The church should pursue unity in light of the seven ones that Paul mentions, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, so forth. Last week, we saw the diversity that exists within this unified uh, body, and this week, we see that those gifts, again, are given toward unity. So you have unity, diversity, and back to the image of unity. And consider how interesting it is that the, that the primary way that Paul says that we're to grow is through speaking. God speaks and creates, and so we are to speak and to sustain what He has uh, created. So going back to that image of kind of working out, you might think of speaking the truth as the exercise. The exercise for the building up of the body. The exercise for the body to gain strength is by speaking the truth in love. It might hurt as working out tends to do, but it's essential if we are to grow. So what does it mean to speak the truth in love? Let me give you a real practical example. Go on the internet, and whatever you see there, do the exact opposite, all right? So you go on the internet, you see a whole lot of squishy, all right, a whole lot of smushy sort of uh, a false understanding of what love is. You see not so much truth, and you see hardly any truth in love, all right? Truth in love on the internet is kind of like finding Bigfoot or Unicorn or something uh, like that. For example, this well-known, really well-known pastor and author recently came out, and he affirmed uh, same-sex marriage. He affirmed uh, the appropriateness of uh, homosexual behavior within uh, the context of a Christian um, uh, lifestyle and so forth. He then later offered a retraction, not of his entire overarching comments, but just of at least that idea of marriage. He said, although I think uh, basically homosexuality is appropriate, same-sex marriage, we should basically follow our, our fathers in that. What was uh, fascinating is to see that the internet blew up, but the way that the internet blew up on most of my feeds and so forth was people that were affirm affirming his repudiation, caving in on the issue of sexuality. And that isn't just an issue of homosexuality or sexuality. Over the past decade in particular, there seems to be this greater and greater alignment between the church and culture, that it seems more and more like the church has kind of lost its prophetic voice amongst the cultural currents uh, and so forth. When people in the church are agreeing with Oprah and Kim Kardashian on social issues, something has gone awry, right? That should not be the way that the church speaks. It's amazing how quickly people are willing to repudiate 2,000 years of church history just because they read one blog 
or one book or whatever it might be. It's what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, the idea we've arrived at some sort of really informed intellectual position uh, now in the 21st century, whatever it might be. Some of that's really small. Some of it's really small. Little bitty things, little bitty uh, places where the church is willing to compromise. Like if a church allows people who haven't been baptized to take communion, even though no tradition, no denomination has ever done that in history. Some of that is much larger. The way that uh, you'll see the, the internet and uh, your news feed and whatever it is are, are blowing up these days with conversations on gender and gender roles. For, for instance, this past week, I spent over an hour looking at churches in McKinney, and I was grieved to find over half of them have full-on female elders, full-on female pastors. All right? There's this compromise of uh, scriptural teaching and tradition and so forth. Uh, we see it not only in sexuality, homosexuality, and gender and gender roles. We see it also in racial rec uh, reconciliation conversations and race relations, whether there's white supremacy or black supremacy or whatever it might be. It kind of goes both ways. Some churches wanting to fly Confederate flags. And then I read this New York Times article by a, a man who said, I love the church, but I love black people more. It cuts both ways, these conversations that are just driven by the culture and not by uh, the text. We see it in a hesitancy of churches to practice church discipline or teach on it. We see it in an expansion of the grounds for divorce and remarriage and on and on and on. We could go all of these places where the, uh, the church should be speaking the truth in love and yet they are punting, they are neglecting, they're ignoring there. And what all of these things tend to have in common is this question of identity. What is your identity? What happens when we make an idol of some aspect of our identity. We idolize our gender and so we give way to chauvinism or feminism. We idolize our race, whatever that is, and so we promote racism or reverse racism. We idolize our sexuality and so there's transgenderism and homosexuality. Or even on the other side of the spectrum, puritanical sort of prudeness, whatever it might be. We idolize these aspects of identity. And what's interesting is Ephesians is a book about identity. That is what Ephesians is about. It's about our identity, but not our identity as a white person or a black person or a male or a female or a person of a particular socioeconomic class. It's our identity as being in Christ. This is the identity that unifies us. This is the identity that defines us. At your most root level, you're not a white female or a black male. At your most root level, you are in Christ. That is who you are in every single one of us struggles somewhere on this truth and love axis. We tend to be so subjective, all of us. We tend to be so feeling-based because our culture is feeling-based rather than fact-based. Feelings are important, but they're also fallible. I think a thousand things, I feel a thousand things a day, most of them are wrong. Most of my feelings I cannot trust. They're fallible. They're changing. And every single one of us, again, struggles somewhere on this truth and love. Some of us are like hammers. We're all truth, all truth, all the time, going to pound it over and over and over again. Some of us are like jello, all this sort of squishy, smushy view of love, all love and no truth, but those virtues can't be divorced. When Paul says to speak the truth in love, the irony there is there is no other way. There is no other way to be loving. Those things can't be uh, divorced. How well will a parent do if they never have hard conversations? If they never speak the truth to their children, how loving is it if you never say things like, 
don't do that. Don't eat that. Don't play in the street. Don't touch that outlet. Don't run by the pool, whatever it might be. That's not loving. It's a failure to speak, and yet it's not loving. Love demands the speaking of truth. This is something that secular culture is increasingly unable or unwilling to listen to, that you can speak the truth without love. And we've all probably experienced that at some point in our life. We've heard someone who's spoken the truth in a way that's not loving. So you absolutely can speak the truth without love, but you can never speak lovingly without the truth. There is no way to speak lovingly without the truth. And this connection between truth and love is interesting as it uh, goes back to the idea, the concept we've seen throughout Ephesians of unity within the body. Paul will talk about, in other passages, he'll talk about there is a time for division. For instance, he says to divide yourself from those who are being divisive. So how do we tell? How do we tell the time when we are to be divisive versus not? What is appropriate to divide over? And the litmus test that he gives is truth. That's why Luther and a number of theologians have said things like, uh, peace if possible, but truth at all costs. We discern on the basis of truth. Not all truths are worth dividing over. There are some uh, sort of peripheral, tertiary truths that you shouldn't divide over your particular eschatological views of the end times or whatever it might be. But truth itself is worth dividing because it's the rich root. It's the rich root from which the church is nourished. And so if a branch is separated from a root, if a branch is separated from that which nourishes it, it will die. In the same way, if we are divided from God's word, we will perish. We will be defiled. And he says the goal of this collective speech is Christ's likeness, that we might grow up in every way into Christ, that we might look more like him. And notice that it's a corporate effort. The sanctification is this community project, not just some individual goal or effort. We bear responsibility for each other within uh, the body. Throughout the entire book of Ephesians, there's this emphasis on the corporate body. The body grows only when each part is working properly. In other words, to the degree that certain members of the body are not growing or not working properly or not working alongside the body, the entire body is stunted or develop, developmentally uh, dis- delayed. For so much of my life, I, I thought sanctification primarily occurred as I sat in my room all by myself, reading my Bible and praying. I thought this is where sanctification occurs. Yes and amen to sanctification occurring in that context. But what I didn't get was really the greatest seasons of sanctification in my life, the greatest times that I have really understood what love is, what truth is, when I've understood and I've felt freer from the enslaving power of sin, those have all been in the context of community. They've all been not where I'm sitting alone in my room, but they've been where I've been around a campfire, or I've been playing ping pong uh, with a guy, or I'm having coffee at Starbucks, or have someone over for dinner at my house, whatever it might be. This is why here at Parkway, over and over and over, we press the idea of community and doing life with others. We can't simply expect you come here once a week and expect to grow from that. That's like saying, I'm going to be nourished by, I'm going to eat one meal a week. How silly would that be? How absurd would that be? And yet there's this natural tendency for us to think we can come here once a week and be fed with God's Word. No, we need to be speaking the truth to each other in our homes, in our offices, in our cars, on our vacations, whatever it might be. Life on life, iron sharpening iron. 
So we've covered quite a bit because the text kind of jumps all over the place uh, this morning. And so as we kind of summarize things, I wanted to give some questions for you and encourage you just to think through these uh, now and then in the the days ahead and so forth to have some conversations uh, about these things to kind of draw out what are some of the implications and applications of our text this morning. So first question for you to wrestle with. First one is, do you treasure truth? Honestly, do you recognize there are still glorious things to learn about God and His Word, or have you begun to coast? Have you begun to stagnate? Have you said, I've gone far enough? Secondly, when it comes to your head and your heart, which do you typically prefer, truth or love? And how might you begin to cultivate the other, knowing that we all have a natural tendency to default one way or another? Which is yours? And how might you begin to strengthen the other areas where you're weak? Imagine, if you will, somebody who only works out their upper body. Their legs are like noodles. How might you begin to lift some weights with your legs to be strengthened in the other area? Third, are there opportunities to evangelize, encourage, or edify others, whether believers or not, that you're currently avoiding? Are there areas, are there opportunities? Would you ask the Lord for those things? And then fourth, do you genuinely treasure the idea of the unity of the body? See, God's grace is incarnated to us within a particular people. He doesn't just incarnate His grace in general. He incarnates within a particular people. There are a particular people, a particular community that God is going to do this work in collectively. And so, my question is, what are you doing here? Do you genuinely treasure the idea of the unity of this particular body, of Parkway, and what are you actively doing to build up Parkway? I love you. I I love who we are and who we've been becoming as I've I've been a part of this church now for 15 months or so. I love what the Lord seems to be doing here, the unity that we're experiencing, just the work of the Spirit that He's bringing in people, that we're reaching people, that we seem to be growing deeper and so forth, just this all of the foundation that some of you members have laid for decades. It seems like there's some fruit that's being born. It's such a pleasure for me to get to be one of your uh, pastors. And so let's pray together as the men come forward to serve communion. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that it's living and active. I thank you that it presses upon us. I thank you for the reality of truth, that you are a God whose word does not change that you are a God who does not change and that it's authoritative and sufficient and all those things that we talked about earlier. And I pray that you would help us, Lord. I pray that you would help us to be a people who are nourished and cherished by truth and a people who are hungry for it, Lord, who crave it, who crave the milk of your word and the meat of your word, Lord. We're unsatisfied elsewhere. We demand that of ourselves and those around us, Lord, that we would be hungry for uh, your truth and that you would build us up, Lord, that, that over the days and weeks and years to come, that Parkway more and more and more might be built up as we speak the truth and love to each other, Lord. And so as we partake in this meal together, Lord, would you bless us? Would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us, Lord? Where we are disheartened, would you give us hope? Where we are discouraged, would you encourage us? Where we are In disobedience, Lord, would you bring conviction, whatever it might be, Lord? Would you deal with your people 
as we need to be dealt with. We ask these things because you are good and you know what we need and you do what's best. And so we ask in Jesus' name.